My name is Mark Solomon, and this is Never Was. I never was a solo artist. (laughs) Okay, so look. I was going to launch into some long ramble about when I did a solo album and how it sucked and why I should have known better and so on and so on. I even had an awesome little story about the time Jeff Ballou, then of The Crucified, gently encouraged me to pull my head out of my ass and knock this off. It came by way of a story about Keith Richards and his opinion on lead singers and solo albums. Here's a hint. He's not a fan. But it just wasn't working. I I wrote this and that. I I found myself not caring. And I had to admit, I don't think you cared either. (laughs) In fact, I'm pretty sure we've been through this all before. Sometimes I I, I forget that. But it's like that. When I know I'm missing the mark, when I know I'm missing the point... Even if I haven't quite identified that mark or that point, I'll go and go and go. But in the back of my mind, there's a tiny little voice quietly stating, you're going the wrong way, dum-dum. Pull over, look at a map or something. Course correct. You see, not only would that feel like boring redundancy and a little selfish, it would also be a very awkward dance around one of those proverbial elephants in the room. And you know what? Why do that? See, my guest this week is Ricky Michelle prolific solo artist and former member of the iconic Gene Eugene's Adam again. And you know what? I owe her a little more of a setup. Less about me, more about her. Because not only has this interview been with me for a while now, and not only has it been pushed back about 15 times, but also because of who she is and what she represents to me as a singer. See, Ricky, now known as Michelle Palmer outside of the rock and roll world, Ricky changed the way I thought about music, in particular punk rock. Also, she's just so nice, I felt like I I was ripping her off. So here's the thing. Back in the day, Ricky was kind of a legend. Sure, some folks, she might have been that girl singer in Adam again. And and don't get me wrong, singing those songs, not just in the studio, but on stage with that band, not easy. Turns out you kind of have to know how to sing to do it. Trust me, we'll get into the Adam again. Uh, Before I forget, there's some live audio on here that is brutal quality. I just had to put it in here, though. It's raw, messy, and it puts me at a certain festival. Sweaty, dusty, you know the place. I think for a lot of people, she was responsible for something more important. And after having spoken to her, I think maybe she doesn't even know it. How cool is that? On a song that was not punk rock at all, on an album that wasn't necessarily 100% punk rock, but was definitely a punk rock record, she got us, me at least, thinking about the genre differently. Like, seeing it as the root of something bigger. See, what I'm referring to is the song A Freedom Cry from Scattered Fuse Sin Disease. You may be familiar with it from episode 27. If not, please go back and check that out in context. It is worth your time, I promise. But in a time where punk rock was so riddled with pissed off dudes desperately trying to find something to be pissed off about, because in truth, we had it pretty good. I mean, we live in America. We have some food, you know, we have water. Uh, her voice at the time, it was like this lovely contrast. It was, it was unpretentious and it was 
unaffected. It wasn't this like put on, you know? And I believe that it truly played a part in the shift from the fast, 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 powerful, fast, fast, fast way of thinking, you know? And it broadened our perspective to something more, something a little higher up the artistic ladder. The timing was perfect, especially if you look at the general state of the music at the time. And if you've been listening to my show for any amount of time, you know how much that that, that means to me. You know, I want people to know that Christian people are definitely writing music that everyone is listening to. That, that, that shit is important to me. Now, of course, I attribute a lot of the, the timing of that to Scatter Few. You know, it was their album after all, and they were awesome. But, but Ricky was willing to jump in the studio and track something off the cuff. And it, it made that record so much larger to me than it already was. And in no surprise to anyone who's paid attention to how great music is made, that little last minute thing turned out to be beautiful, you know? I have to say, I don't know that a lot of people as established as she was at the time would have even done that. See, we were at the kids' table. Bands like Scattered Few and The Crucified, Vengeance and The Lead. And she came over to our table and dropped this little love bomb on everybody. And it was incredible. So she was gracious enough to comment for the Scattered Few anniversary episode. And, you know, we did that at the end of the last year. But even further, she allowed me, a fan and resident kids table sitter, who in truth knew her in no way at all, to conduct an interview for a show of her own. This one that you're listening to. You can imagine that was kind of a big deal for me. (laughs) Alas, things just, they were just sort of destined to be a little trickier in the ultimate execution of this whole thing. But here we are, just a little further down the road than originally anticipated. I mean, every time, every time I've gone to finish this interview and share it with you, something weird has happened. That's just all there is to it. General life stuff and unexpected work to new music and crowd funds and assorted chaos to, frankly, unexpected tragedy, okay? And of course, a healthy dose of my own lacking qualities in between. I'm not above reproach here. Anyway, our conversation kept finding itself in the back of the line. And I, I kept thinking, like, I can't just put it out. It needs a little buildup. So here it is, built up right now. This one, at least, won't run short. I can assure you of that, guys. We talked well over an hour. I tried to keep it both streamlined and full. But this is a career of decades, folks. That's a lot to cover. Save for weird moments when my dog went nuts or my phone blew up where I panicked as to what question to ask next, because, you know, it's the freaking singer from Freedom Cry, you guys. (laughs) Look, it happens, okay? I tried my best to keep the perspective. It's not easy separating eras of art from an artist as prolific, but I also had to to respect the material and all that has occurred. You know Ricky, you knew Gene, you knew Adam again, you understand what I'm saying. And for those who don't, I encourage you to relax and enjoy. Uh, I am officially done selfishly withholding my chill time with the one and only Ricky Michelle. Enjoy. We do a lot of nostalgia <laughs> on the show, okay? Well, and I knew about you because Dave said, you've got to listen to this podcast because my friend was just recently on it. We have a mutual friend, MC Peace. That's right. That's right. And uh, I loved that interview. It was so cool. We were pretty close for a minute and then, you know, life kind of steps in. Yeah. Uh, I get it. But yeah, it was 
it was good to be able to catch up with him. And, and, you know, as I understand, it's not like you've just been hanging out waiting to talk to me for the last 20 years. You've had a couple things going on as well. <laughs> a few, a few things. <laughs> so what, where a lot of our listeners are going to know you from, and, you know, I'm just going to kind of jump right into all of that, if you don't mind, is Adam again and the early, it. like late 80s, early 90s, pre-tooth and nail era, if, if you will. You know, mm-hmm. all those different labels, Broken, I think Brainstorm might have been in there as yeah. well. Broken, it started out as Broken, yeah. Let's see, Blonde Vinyl. Mm-hmm. I, there were a ton of labels early on. It was really pretty scattered. And then Tooth and Nail kind of came in and... Well, realistically, they they signed everybody. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but my first introduction to you and to the band was as kind of an outsider at the Cornerstone Festival. You know, we Crucified, which was my band back at that time in the in mm-hmm. the that late eighties, early nineties. Crucified was playing Cornerstone, and we were still kind of considered like the, you know, we got your nose kind of band like oh look at those adorable little punk rockers you know what i mean a little scruffle the hair and, and, <laughs> and you know we're just on the outside like not sure where we fit in and you know trying to kind of hang out at nighttime and listen to the groups play and i mean for us we i grew up on i mean on punk rock is was my music you know but i mean we tried everything that had christian uh relationships because it was going to be okay with mom and dad Eventually, some of our more enlightened mm-hmm. friends would turn us on to bands like Adam again. And I remember yeah. those first early, like that early Cornerstone. I don't know if it was like, might have been 91 or 92. It was at the New Grounds, mm-hmm. as I remember, the, the one that was the final place. And yeah, I remember watching you guys on stage for like literally, it felt like three hours. You could just jamming and people were dancing all night. It was, mm-hmm. and I wasn't really ready for that at all. I had no idea what that was going to be like. I mean, do you remember that era very well? What did you, what did Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Clearly that's my whole experience with Adam again is crystal clear. And I cherish all of those memories in those days. And it was like that every time we'd play Cornerstone, it turned into a big dance party. Yeah. (laughs) Peace and I talked about it during his interview, just watching you guys on stage. It was like, you had all these plans. Like there were, (laughs) For most of us, it was just get up there and play all the songs you know and get out of there before anybody notices you don't know what you're doing, you know. <laughs> but we're like watching you guys and there's like there was like a real show involved. I always I always admired that. I still remember the first time seeing it. For me, the record was Homeboys. I mean, that album just yeah. really hit me at a, a great time. Uh and then and of course Dig is is a is a beautiful collection of songs, you know. Maybe kind of get us there. Like, how did you go from from ex- just existing? We, we don't know anything really about before Adam again. So I'd, I'd like to kind of know, like, where'd you come from? How did you get into music, you know? Okay, sure. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a PK. I'm a preacher's kid. So Uh-oh. Fr- from the very get-go, I was sat up on the pulpit, you know, and handed a mic. So that's that's my musical background. I totally grew up in the church and... I grew up singing um, in front of my church since probably age four is the earliest memory I have of singing a solo in front of church, you know? Awesome. And I was always in the choirs and I met Greg Lawless. He's our guitar player. Right. um, 
and Paul Valadez when I was quite young. Uh, Paul was my earliest um, friend. He also grew up in the same church. His family is, you know, has been in my parents' church forever. So we were, we were friends in, you know, junior high and high school. He's a little bit older than I am, but I, his sister was one of my best friends. Okay. And then, uh, and then I met Greg next when I was in high school and then Gene followed, he went to same denomination, but a different church. And he started coming to our church and he and Greg and Paul had already formed a band. In fact, he and Paul grew up together. Gene and Paul did in Pomona. And, uh, we all just started kind of hanging out, you know, via the youth group. And then Gene would play, um, every once in a while in church. And, um, that's kind of, uh, where he and I crossed paths. Sure, sure. (laughs) He started, he started playing, I started singing. And then, uh, he had a band called Martis and, uh, Sim Wilson was the lead singer. He he went on to be the lead singer yeah. of Undercover later on. Right. He's a, he's also another he's also another preacher's kid that I grew up with. No kidding. So small world in that church, you know, in that church environment. What what church and what high school are we talking about here? Um, I grew up in Ontario, Upland area, and my dad was the pastor of um, Ontario Church of God. Okay, and he's still a Church of God pastor. Pretty pretty conservative. Sure. sure. <laughs> background. Yeah. Um, I'm sure he loved all these rock and roll kids coming around. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, he was so conflicted. He was so conflicted because he didn't get it at all. He didn't get how we could be Christians and oh, yeah. be playing, you know, rock music in the church. But, you know, he let us use the church begrudgingly mm-hmm. um, to, to rehearse and stuff like that. And he, you know, he, he had to come to a couple of the gigs to see it all in action before he could truly like let himself enjoy seeing his kid up there dancing around, you know, but he did, he did finally come around. He wasn't a big fan of Gene either. I have to say I had, you know, (laughs) well, I was 16, Gene was 21 and we started dating. And then I started, you know, I, I, uh, I started singing in the band So my dad was clearly uh, Who's this disturbed guy? by the whole thing. And Gene's not, he's not, yeah. And he's not super outgoing or, or you know, like a happy-go-lucky character. So <laughs> it was really kind of hard for them to get to know who right. he was. Sure. But um, he worked his magic through playing for the offertory, playing piano for the offertory. So uh. he, he kind of won them over with his talent that does not surprise me (laughs) but they but they did you know once you get to know him he's charming and lovely and um you know they they grew to love him and um, they had to because we got serious right off the bat you know i was 16 and and we got married when i was 18 wow so um there's that (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) and that's not that's not recommended. No, by the no, way, you're not for encouraging those, for all those <laughs> for all those people listening who have kids. Yeah, I'm not encouraging anybody getting married at 18 years old. Bad for the idea. record, Very for the bad. record, uh, Ricky has children of her own, so she's you know you're probably thinking <laughs> little. Sure, I do. Yeah. I am. I'm. I'm in mommy mode. I'm in mommy <laughs> mode all the time. So, what high school we're we talking about here? Um, yeah, well, I, you know, they were all five and a half years older. They went to school in Pomona. Uh, I was going to school in Ontario. I went to Chafee okay. High in Ontario. Um, but as soon as I started dating Jean, I started to <laughs> ditch quite a bit and Ooh. get less and less involved in my school. <laughs> I was, I wanted to, I wanted to live the rock and roll lifestyle. 
Um, that might have been another reason why I thought getting married at 18 was a great oh, idea. Well. But, you know, I mean, it was what it was. And we, I, I, don't, I don't regret a second yeah. of it. We had a great time in the band. And um, it was truly magical being a part of um, that kind of music. He continues to still be one of my favorite writers. Sure. Um, and I had so much fun you know, being on stage with those guys. I love those guys. I, I miss them all terribly. You know, I, I knew this, not to jump ahead too far, but I also, I mean, obviously Gene has passed, but but Paul as well. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was a shocker too. Yeah, it's, 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 it's surreal, you know. I mean, I wasn't around Paul on a daily basis. He lived in another state when he passed mm-hmm. away. So to me, it's, it's just a story. Yeah. You know, I all those guys are still living on in my mind and my heart. It's just, um, yeah, it's yeah. kind of sad, but we, we had, we had a blast, sure. you know, we were making music and, um, you know, Gene was sort of the, he, he could saw all the props for, you know, those shows at Cornerstone. Well, the guys, everybody had a, a, I think an equal hand in it. And, you know, Gene's idea to truly put on a good show. Like you said, it just seemed like it was, um, it was, mapped out pretty yeah. well it, you know on our end it was mapped out ha- haphazardly <laughs> <laughs> but but he knew sure. what he was doing he was a great band leader you know and uh, cornerstone was definitely our where we kind of got our start as a band getting a, a broader audience outside sure. of california and i i think that's still where a lot of my fan base um originated from uh, mine too and you know we have that yeah, we have that festival to thank Absolutely. for really the beginnings of a lot of our bands, right? Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Uh, it's probably the biggest crowds, you know, that we played for and had the opportunity to do. I'm so thankful for those times. Thank you. 
If you're starting off rock and roll right out of high school, were you guys playing clubs and stuff like that? Uh, was the green light required to do that sort of thing, I guess? Well, um, kind of. We weren't the, we didn't play a whole lot. You know, like all of our friends' bands, they were going on the road and stuff. And um, we did, you know, we did play. We played quite a bit at the beginning, but we weren't, uh, we didn't, we weren't like gigging every weekend sure. or anything like that. We did play a few clubs. Um, you know, mo- our busiest time would be in the summer for the festivals and stuff. We went to Europe a couple of times, played Flavo oh, yeah. and Greenbelt and, and those things. And that was really great too. But, you know, even as uh, every, by every record we were playing less and less because Gene was producing sure. more and more. So, you know, our, we weren't like a normal band playing all the time. So, you know, Gene's, Producing more and more. I'm sure the other guys are doing stuff. Uh, what are you doing at this time? I mean, the role, some people might just assume the backing vocal there, you know, and that you were just, you were singing with the group. But I saw composer credits all over uh, for you for some of these records. I mean, were you doing other stuff as well? In addition to Adam again, we're working with other artists and other bands and I don't know, kind of finding yourself. Oh, yeah. Con- I yeah, I was, I was constantly, well, because we were in such a great position with the, um, having a, a recording sure. studio in Huntington beach, a lot of our friends bands were recording there as well. So, um, I sang on, you know, anybody who was recording and, you know, wanted a background <laughs> vocalist, we were all hanging out, we were all hanging out. So, and we were all really good, good friends. So, um, I sang on a bunch of the choir records and Daniel Amos and whoever, really whoever was in the studio, um, there's a lot of things happening all the time. That was really fun for me. Adam again had a very established setup. You know, Gene was the lead singer and I was sort of like his ex scene to John Doe and, you know, and that was really great. But there became a time where I, you know, I was growing up, I was still really young and I was starting to grow up and mature in my own um, musical abilities and my needs and longings. So that's why I started doing solo records. So Gene, Gene and I wrote my first, Gene and Steve Hinalong and I wrote my first solo record together. Gene did all the music for it. So I was still, it was, it was my own and I, you know, it was my first record, but it was still very much Gene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, And that's great. I mean, that's just, that's just how it all began. And I, I learned so much through that sure. whole process. And, um, since then I've done five solo records and, um, each, each record, I became more of my own person. Absolutely. Pulled away more from their writing and did a little bit more of my writing. You know how you just grow and learn. Thinking. Look at that monkey 
Gene and I were, you know, married for uh, eight years, together for ten, and you know, our we started to grow apart right around, I'd say, the beginning of the Dig era. Okay. And uh, you know, and a lot of those tunes are personal. Sure, sure. Um, and it was it was really difficult to go through that. Um, but we actually, when uh, you know, done a couple of interviews since I've done this last record, and one of the things that I don't think I've ever mentioned is that we. Even after we split up, we right. stayed in the band. Everybody together. was a little unsure how to. <laughs> it was. I mean, think about it for for how to how to how to take that. <laughs> yeah, for fans, we're like, I don't know, I don't understand. They must be really well put together people, man. I mean, <laughs> if you can do that, you know. I think. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's just the opposite. You're so broken that like you're like yeah. Fuck it. <laughs> no, divorce gonna the music yeah. the music is so important that you learn how to navigate it. And the one thing about me and Jean that I don't think uh like we always understood and it was hard to explain to other people and I, I get that it's a mystery and it's really weird, but we were together for so long that we were family. Sure. You know, and it was painful and dark and ugly. Um separating and divorcing in the middle of that. And we had a hard time getting along sometimes, but we were not going to sacrifice being together for the music. Right. Um, and we, like I said, we didn't play that much anyways. So our tension didn't, you know, it wasn't like a daily tension. I could see that, you know, where you have a little bit of space, a lot of space. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we remained friends after we broke up because we're, we were all in the same community. Yeah. We had the same people, you know, and I think for people that break up with one another, that um, divorce that you're having problems. So really you separate way before anybody else knows about it and you learn to deal with it. The hardest, most heartbreaking part is when you finally do get away from one another and you sacrifice your community. Yeah. You know, you feel like you don't have that anymore. And uh, yeah, these are your people. And, and you, and it's hard for your people to figure that out too. It's the worst situation for your poor friends to figure out, you know, um, how they're going to be loyal to both of you and not hurt either one of you. And it's, it's just breakups are crap, man. It's just hard and it's hard to go through, but you learn and become strong and, and uh, we're, I'm still friends with all those people and, you know, we made it through, but I, it was such a dark time for me that I finally had to get out of town. Faithful sign. 
want the stars to measure time The earth is hard, treasure fine To the sea I'll crawl on my knees Feel it coming in Water covers sin, blood covers doubt. So I begin again, again, the healing bow. There was a time that I might have surrendered, but not now. It's all the carbs to measure earth is hard and treasure fine to the sea I'll crawl on my knees and count the stars to measure time the earth is hard but the treasure fine at the sea I'll wait on my knees at the sea I'll wait on my knees At the sea I'll wait on my knees I was working on my second record and Terry Taylor was producing and it was hard and dark and weird and um, actually Gene mentioned that He's like, man, you should, you, you know, you should go to Nashville because the choir had gone there a year before us and we had a lot of friends there. And, you know, I was still a little bit bitter towards Gene. So I was thinking, you know, I wouldn't go, especially now because you're the one that <laughs> suggested it. <laughs> but I was already, you know, I was planning the trip within a minute of, of, of hearing the suggestion yeah. because it was a great idea. Um, and I was only planning on going to Nashville for a year. That was during my, uh, the recording of my second record that was around 94. And um, Gene and I had already been split up for a couple of years, but it was still, you know, just hard, dark times yeah, try, yeah. trying to navigate that and become my own woman and, and um, you know, grow up. Absolutely. And uh, that move to Nashville was a turning point in my life. I sold my truck. I bought a 75 Chevy Goodyear van. When I say Goodyear, I mean, it was owned by Goodyear. So it was blue <laughs> and it had the Goodyear logo on the side Incredible. with a tennis shoe with a wing. Yeah. Do you remember that logo? Heck yeah. I work for NASCAR. I, was, I see that logo all the yeah, time. <laughs> it was, I was so happy when I found that van. I was so happy and I put everything I owned in that van and drove from California to Nashville and I look back on that now. I'm like, man, that was ballsy. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what got into me. I like, I, I didn't think I could be that, you know, bold and I did it. And I, I made a whole new life for myself in Nashville. And, um, it really did. It just changed me for the better. Sure. Um, I stopped, you know, kind of watching life move around me and started controlling, you know, where I was going. And, um, it's great. And that's when I met Dave. Well, I, I had met, I, I met Dave. We were friends for a long time, but through the music business, we both, you know, um, would bump into each other at conventions and festivals and things like that. And when I moved to Nashville, he and I became, um, really close friends and we were 
best friends for a good six months before oh, okay. somebody kissed somebody. Uh-oh. And then it was all over. Yeah. All over at that point. <laughs> I love some Dave Palmer, man. I think that's awesome. I do too. I do awesome. too. He's, he's my, uh, he's definitely my rock for sure. He's an amazing yeah. guy. So let me ask you something, you know, you, you talk about going out there and, and, and what a ballsy move that, that was because it was one Goodyear van and all, but you know, for, I just want people to understand the different challenges in, in the stages of the music, you know, I mean, for myself, I, I was in a punk rock band for years and years, screaming and yelling yeah. one emotion, you know, pissed off about something all the time. And then the band I came into later, Staves yeah. Acre, we, you know, tried to be a little more balanced and have access more emotions than our ill-placed rage. Right. Right. But that was terrifying. Okay. Yeah. Like our first, the first Staves Acre show that I did, I was, I was scared shitless. I didn't know <laughs> what was going to happen. And people actually started chanting crucified, crucified while we were on stage. You're kidding. You know, that's a scary moment. Yeah. Oh no. And with good reason, because we were sucking really bad. <laughs> but <laughs> I totally remember that band, but I can't like, you know, I can't, I can't place myself. I know that I've heard, yeah. I've heard Dave Zapier and I remember you guys being around. You were doing yeah, pretty well, actually, yeah. right? Well, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but I will say, like, what, what I was trying to get at is you come from, I mean... For me, it's it, it was I was hiding very comfortably behind the crucified guys for years. You know, I don't have to do much. The guys are playing a thousand beats a minute. I jump out on top of some people, run around. I might even step on somebody's face. No one cares, right? I get back on the stage. We all sing a chorus together. Everything's fine. Yeah. You flip it around. You go to do the stage acre thing, and like pe- nobody knows yeah. these songs. No one knows these melodies. No one knows that I can sing. They're still not sure if I can sing, right? you know? So, yep. so here's you. you, you've been with Adam again, this like, I mean, come on, that's a force of nature right there on stage. Uh, everybody knows the names of the guys in the band. I mean, for crying out loud, Johnny knocks on the high kick drum. I, we, I know these lyrics, you know? So for, for you to step away from that and you go and yeah, do your yeah. own thing. I mean, was that, did you have any moments of just sheer terror, especially on stage? I mean, oh yeah. my gosh, I want to think yeah, about what that was like. <laughs> oh, you know, well, that's my comfort zone. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I was, I was terrified, but I'm always nervous um, before I go on stage. The terror came from not being a writer huh. like Gene, but knowing that I had something to say, absolutely, you know, and, yeah. and wanting to say it on my own, desperately wanting to disassociate myself from Gene's writing, not because I don't appreciate it, but because yeah, I desperately course. wanted to be my own person. And, and my, and unfortunately, like those are my ghosts, <laughs> Gene, Steve, Terry, like though for a long time, like I, you know, I had to go to therapy over it for a long time. I, every time I would write something, I would, they, their faces would be right behind me, like just Ugh. swirling around in my head. And and I was constantly comparing every line to um, yeah. that high bar, and not being that type of writer at that time, I it oh it bothered me a lot that I could not get rid of that um, comparison. I think that's what a lot of artists do, anyways. That that's one thing that I have to constantly remind myself of is to be free of 
doing that comparison thing. Yeah. And so that uh, the being on stage and and in, in front was that was more fun than anything, you know. And um, I started putting bands together right away. Like when I went moved to Nashville, I I had a couple of different bands, and that mm. was just sheer joy to get back on stage and have all the music swirling around my head. And I've always been fortunate to be surrounded yeah. with top-notch musicians and and be be in that position to be able to um you know Adam again gave me credibility uh to share the music with other people and get to know other people as a musician whether I was yeah. on the same level um you know I never I never was on the same level but I was fortunate enough to be able to speak the language and and tell and and offer myself fully vulnerably (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, and just jump off the cliff. I had to, I had no other choice. Gene wasn't there anymore to do it all for me. And I was sick of that anyway. You know, I didn't want anybody doing it for me anymore. So I had to jump off and freak out and cringe at some of the music that I wrote. And, you know, there's some parts on every record that I have where I'm like, I can't believe <laughs> I let that go out there, you know. Do, but it's do you have you an entire album of that? Because I do. Uh, <laughs> I have an entire album of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm lucky enough to say I don't have an entire album of it, but there's some pretty big collections of crap out there. Um, but you know, you, you live and you learn and you see your progress and that's what I've enjoyed the most. You know, I, I, I'm glad that I jumped off all those cliffs and I'm still jumping and yeah, I'll put it this way. I want to, obviously we have to get into push and the new album as one of those jumping off points. And one of those moments where you really stepped out, I mean, especially it ain't easy becoming an adult in all of this stuff. I mean, you started at the same age that I was, you know, when you're 15, 16, 18 years old, right? nothing can really harm you, you know, but yeah, start getting to where we have to take care of life and making music becomes very challenging. And yeah, and it can, there, there's, it ha, that has its own set of, at least for myself, it has my own set of insecurities I have to deal with there. But I, I want to say before we go any further, you were a legend <laughs> to a lot of people that you might not have been aware of. And it's because of that, that thing that I mentioned earlier, that Scattered Few record. Like you had said before, when we were talking, uh, whoever came into the studio, you'd jump in there and sing, you know, was that, was that Scattered Few album, mm-hmm. the Freedom Cry? I mean, was that one of those scenarios or you just happened to be there that day? And Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had a clearer memory of, of recording that. When I went back and listened to the song, I was like, oh yeah, I totally remember that song. <laughs> but I don't remember recording it that day. Um, Terry, you know, Terry and I were really good friends. And um, didn't he, he produced that record, right? Terry yeah, Taylor. Terry, yeah. I think Gene was also in the production credit, but yeah, yeah that's so, Terry Yeah, Taylor. so I'm sure that they both snagged me, you know, and I, I was friends with the guys too, the guys in the band. Okay. And um, like they had come to my birthday party and we were always hanging out at the studio. So it was just one of those times where we're all hanging out at the studio and they're, they're like, you know, want to come sing on this record. I'm sure it wasn't like a super well thought out plan. It was probably just because I was there. <laughs> See, but that's so cool. It's like, I mean, I'm going to rave about that record plenty as it is, but it's a great record. It's a great record. And that song to me represents not only a change of perspective, you know, cause they could have easily gone through the whole album, just all been punk rock songs. Maybe a couple of them more like theatrical tracks, you know, the Bowie influence and, and all, but 
But to drop that song right there in the middle of it, and it's such a lovely melody, and your melody is like, I mean, it stands out immediately. So there's like all these punk rockers that, you know, they might know who Adam again is. (laughs) They might know who Undercover is. But in truth, like for, for a lot of folks, we weren't trying to hear all that stuff. We wanted to hear the fast stuff, you know? Yeah. And that record, the, the Sin Disease album, was a huge part of myself being able to see there were more aspects to music. And I, to this day, still will, I'll listen to the whole thing all the way through, but Freedom Cry and your voice on there is so lovely. And I'm telling you, you got all these people Aww, on the periphery you. who totally know that jam. <laughs> They totally oh, know that jam. That's nice. I, I I really like hearing that. I I'm a big fan of that tension. You know, I love when punk rock bands or hard rock bands put in some sweet melodies and sweet harmonies. Yeah. I think it's a I think it's a great. It just does something to your heart, you know. And I, yeah, what is he? What is what is Rumold Allen go by now? Didn't he, he change by, his name again? He goes by Allen. Okay, Allen. Mm-hmm. He has such a. Uh, richness to his voice when he slows down and oh, sings yeah. melodically that um, I just, I love those moments on records when you get sort of a glimpse of another side, you know, it kind of like grips you in a way that you it's unexpected. It's, ah. it's mysterious. There were these kind of spheres, you know, there was like the, the undercover altar boys mm-hmm. choir right. kind of thing. Right. Right. And then over here, there's like, Crucified and Scatterfew and Vengeance Rising, all these like metal bands and punk rock bands. And then yeah. over on a different one was SFC and Renee, Peace Fighter, right. you know, Freedom of Soul. Right. And honestly, if you really think about it, right in the center of those three circles is Adam again, Gene Eugene, Ricky Michelle. Like that, all of that is the one link that ties those things together. And I, I understand Gene was a prolific writer and a great artist, but to me and to the fan, all the band is the band, you know? Wow. It's, for me, it's such, a, it's such an honor to even be able to talk to you and, and kind of hear where your own musical journey is going. But that's where that connection, because we didn't know any of you guys. I mean, really, I, right. I met Gene right. over the years and stuff, and we hung out at the green room or whatever, but I, I came in through that door through the Peace 586 door, you know? Oh, yeah. I did the the XL and DVD record and stuff like that. So I didn't know Joey Taylor. Joey Taylor was like, oh, that's Ojo Taylor. Don't look at him. Don't look at him. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> that level of like, oh, this is weird, you know? <laughs> I mean is here I sit torching in 
on from that i mean from adam again to nashville to now and what am i missing in there got it got it so i moved to nashville i think in 94 and i was only planning on staying a year that's what everybody says right there you're gonna go to nashville you'll hang out with your friends you'll play a bunch of gigs maybe get some management and then i'll come home Uh everybody says that and guess what nobody ever goes home (laughs) it's like hotel california right it's you can't leave but well, my the reason why I stayed is because Dave and I started dating. I fell in love, you know, and oh, um, yeah. and so I stayed in Nashville. And when when we started dating, you know, we were we got married within that same year. It was like nine months later, ten months later that we got married. And so we built a home in a community in Nashville, and it was great because our dearest friends were my friends from California, the choir guys uh-huh. and. Dan Dan Michaels uh, was my neighbor in Pomona wow. for seven years, and he was also Dave's really great friend. So uh, we just started a whole new fabulous community in Nashville with the, some of the same California peeps and then yeah. a lot of other transplants that came from different places, um, people in different bands and stuff like that. So I felt really plugged in. In fact, I felt more plugged in in Nashville community-wise because we were closer mm-hmm. just uh, geographically. We're all, you know, we don't have to drive really far to see one another. We're all like tight knit community. And then Dave was in the uh, music business. So he had this whole like ripple effect of people in the business that we, maybe we didn't know each other, but the fact that they knew Adam again and knew the music, I felt known. Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was important to me. I didn't go to uncharted territory in a way it was uncharted, but I felt like, I had friends and I had, I had community and I felt understood. Yeah. And, and, and that's really important when you're going through such big life changing events and growing, you're growing up. I was in my twenties. I was a jerk in my twenties, you know, is it making crappy decisions and, you know, um, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) 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 You know, I mean, it's, it was, it was good to, I think that's why Dave and I, um, we fell in love. I mean, he jokes that he was a fan of the band and, and that's what kind of led him to me, but he's the, he's the most gem of a human you can find. And hmm. when we were, w- the fact that we were best friends for six months, we had so many conversations. He knew me fully ins okay. and outs, ugly, horrible twenties and everything, you know, and, um, I knew Jean and understood all the writing and understood you know, where I was coming from. And so I felt like I'm totally open with him. No secrets. It was just such a joy, such a joy to meet him and fall in love 
and um, be completely understood. And I kind of felt that way about Nashville and my whole community. So jump forward, we were married and we were married for about six years until we started having kids. Okay. I was already like, I was 36 when we started trying. I got pregnant right away and had my um, daughter, Sydney. Awesome. Oh, sorry. I jumped ahead too far. The year before that, I, I made my second solo record. Okay. A third. I'm sorry, third. And um, that was my true breakout um, solo experience. Uh, I had Julian Kindred producing a phenomenal producer and musician. Um, he and I took a year and wrote all the music together awesome. and then recorded it. And I felt like it was truly the first time I pegged the exact music I wanted to present. Awesome. Um, and, and no one else was driving, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, I mean, Julian, he was, he was a, he was a great, we were co-drivers and I didn't feel like, um, I truly felt like I was saying exactly what I wanted to say. And it was nobody else's poetry, but my own. And that was a life-changing experience yeah. for me. Uh, and then I had my daughter the, a year later and I, I put together a band in Nashville. I found these two kids that were amazeballs. They were so good, still are. And, um, and I knew it was just a matter of time because they were so young. I knew it was a matter of time before they were going to get stolen away mm -hmm. and, you know, hired by the big wigs. And that did, that did eventually happen. But it was great to play with those guys. We played around town. And um, after Sydney was born, we still played. We, we went on the road. We opened up for Mike Rowe in one state. That was kind of yeah. fun. And we did it as, as long as I could. But man, having a band and a baby was way more than I thought it was going to be. Having a baby was way more than I thought it was going to be. And I wasn't the kind of person that could make, it, but make both of them Ooh. work. So I put the band on the back burner and... Um, and they all went and did their own thing anyway. And, um, you know, I still I still sung and played as often as I could. I was involved in a um, this great church called Edge Hill United Methodist Church in Nashville. And so I sang there as much as I could. Um, and so just sang around, you know, like do acoustic performances here and there. But um, three years later, I had Max, my son. And that just I, I blindsides you. Hmm. A couple of kids, man. And you, there's... There's no time. There's no time for any of it. And like you said, it, it becomes increasingly harder to to do anything, really. Oh, yeah. I mean, if I parented properly, I wouldn't have time to do anything.
kids started getting older, my longing to do another record was starting to surface a little bit more and more. In 2007, we moved back to California because Dave got a job opportunity uh, at Youth Specialties. Okay. And that was really great. We, we always, after we had kids, we, we found it increasingly harder and harder to leave the grandparents when we would visit. Oh, yeah. And so we had intended to relocate to either Chicago, where Dave's from, or California. And fortunately, he got a job offer out of California. So we came to the community of La Mesa, just right out of downtown San Diego. And it's, it's a fabulous, wonderful community. And our kids started kindergarten here and, you know, it was, it was great. And that's when I really was just chomping at the bit to, to do some sure. music. So I started playing around town. Moving to San Diego was the first time I'm completely unaware of any sort of musical community. I have no connections, no ties, feel like a lost child. Uh-huh. I, don't, I don't know anyone here that does music, you know, when we first moved here. So, you know, I grabbed the first guitar player I met. And we started doing, you know, local gigs around town. About a year and a half later, uh, Dave's company was sold and they wiped out the entire staff. And we had bought a house here and, <sighs> and it ruined, ruined us financially. Totally uh, pulled the r- financial rug out from underneath us. And we had to sell our house and become renters again after 16 years of being With kids. homeowners. And I know, I mean, everyone I knew here with kids and everyone I knew here was going through the sure, same exact sure. thing. Well, that's probably um, the bubble time as well, right? I mean, doesn't that put it? Yeah, that was what, yeah, that's when it was all happening, yeah. all come crashing down. And um, you know, we rented here for less than a year, and we're like, man, what are we doing? We can't, we can't afford to be here. And uh, we, you know, we were just trying to figure out what our future was holding. And Dave had uh, he started his own marketing company, kind of out of necessity, while he was looking for another full time job, and it was actually starting to do pretty well. And he had a lot of clients in the Midwest, and and we had a community in Nashville. So we thought, well, maybe we should just move back, you know? And um, so that's what we did. We packed up and moved back to Nashville and we didn't move back to our old hood. So that was kind of hard. Uh, it was a little bit tougher going back. Um, the kids, you know, they were, they had gone to school for a few years here in San Diego uh-huh, and, yeah. and we're getting older and it, it was hard for them to wrap their brains around um, a different uh, way of life and different mentality they had some hardships at school because people were talking a lot about the rapture and the, you know, things that they didn't. Yeah, oh boy. You know, very strange, <laughs> more conservative, um, you know, um, surroundings than they're used to were pretty liberal folks and mm-hmm. um, were just different, you know, different environment for them. We were there for a few months um, but we were determined to make it work. We were digging in, you know, we had a lovely house we were renting and we were back in touch with all of our old peeps and, and they were so happy we were back and we were, we were going to make it happen. And, uh, in December, we, my parents came out to visit us and, um, my sister called and said that, um, this was three years ago in December. Okay. Uh, she called and said she had the flu or something, but it, and it was pretty major and she was feeling feeling pretty sick. And within weeks we found out she had colon cancer. And, um, that was such a hard blow. My sister's five and a half years older than me and vibrant. She doesn't even look her age. You know, she's normal functioning person. There was nothing wrong with her, you know, and all of a sudden she's bedridden in a hospital. So I went home to California a couple of times to visit her 
And um, during this whole time, I was talking to somebody else about possibly doing a record, and I had started doing a little bit of writing, but I uh, didn't get very far on that prospect. But going back to visit her a couple of times, and the second time I went back to visit her, my whole family was there. My brother flew out from Oklahoma, her family, her three children who are in their 20s, and her husband and my parents, we were all around her hospital bed when she passed oh, away. Boy. And uh, it only took two months from her diagnosis to her passing. And to be to to suffer the her the my personal loss, but to be in that room on that day in the midst of all of that happening and to see my parents. Yeah. Yeah. I'll pull it together. Hang on. You know, to see my parents go through that, uh, to see it was a it literally changed my life. Like it was I know people throw that term around like that was a life changing experience. That it changed me. Yeah. Something happened to me. Um, and so I, you know, when I went home, I just, I couldn't settle in. I couldn't settle back into Nashville and my family was having kind of a hard time settling in anyway. And I just, I just wanted to be around my family. I wanted to be close to her family. I wanted to be close to my mom and dad. And, um, Dave, Dave knew right away. I mean, I talked to him when I was on my way to the airport coming home from her funeral and he was telling me our daughter was having a bad day at school. And I said, I would do anything to make her happy again. And he said, I've, I've made some calls, you know, like both of us were on the yeah, same yeah. track all very, very quickly. And it wasn't an easy decision. We had just settled in. We just moved. We upheaved our family and moved. And, and because of her death um, and because of, you know, the things going on with our kids and stuff, we just decided to come back to sure. California it was a very broken experience. I was raw and broken, and um, my friends in Nashville did not get it at all. I mean, they understood my heartbreak, but they were afraid we were making a rash decision by packing up and going back home. And they were just sad. They were sure, sad for me. Sure. They were, you know, we had all just gotten back together after years. So it was all hard. It was it was so hard, you know, and. Um, and like I said, very, very life altering for me. And um, when I, when we came back, you know, everybody uh, in La Mesa, were just like open wow. arms, our old community, we found awesome. it like it was all pretty miraculous. We found this amazing house via somebody else while we were still, you know, in Nashville. And all of our friends were just like open arms, loving on our little poor, sad, broken bones <laughs> and helping yeah. us helping us, you know, get back on our feet again, emotionally. And the kids were just, you know, they settled right back into their old school and their old friends. And I'm telling you, it was like, it, it was miraculous. Yeah. All of it was pretty amazing. It needed to happen. It needed to happen. Like I, I don't think I would have uh, loved on this community that I live in so much had I not moved away from it and come back. I hold my community in Nashville so much more dear because we had that time sure. together. We had that, you know, refreshing of our, of our friendships together. I'm glad I, I'm glad they were there with me. You know, those are my, like my real brothers and sure. sisters, sure. you know, that I, it just all yeah. had to yeah. happen. You got to have your people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and now, now I, we feel pretty lucky that we, we consider ourselves to have two yeah. homes, sure. one in Nashville and one here. And we always go back. I've been back, you know, several times since then. And, um, you know, and that's how that all, <laughs> that's how push came to be, you know.
time the transition is there this obviously the album is on your heart to make you know something's got to come out of this yeah. i mean you don't yeah. come out of that and then have nothing to say right yeah. <laughs> right 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 so how do you find the time and where does the songs come I mean, there's a bunch of stuff i'd like to talk to about this record obviously we don't have all the time in the world but i have to say the sweetness is and uh the gift are the two jams that just like instantly that's i know your voice <laughs> i know the vibe <laughs> i i feel it you know and the presence uh also into peace i think the tr- second track um i really in, enjoy the, the the record what do you how do you feel and how, how do you I mean where are you at with this album well i i was slated to go in a completely different direction um and i uh i went about a year and I think it's been about a year and a half ago, one of my friends from Nashville called me and said, is there any way you can surprise our friend Marie for her 50th birthday? And I was like, oh, well, I'll talk to Dave. Like, when is it? And she called me on a Wednesday because she goes, well, it's this Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I, was like, uh, well, you, I said, you're going to have to call Dave. Uh, do you know Russ and Tiffany Long? Russ is a, a sound engineer in Nashville. 
um, really close friends of ours. And and Tiff used to work at Squint with Dave and Steve Taylor. But um, she's the one that called me and I said, you're going to have to call Dave and really butter him up because that's quick. So Dave called me and he said, look, we can make this work if you turn it into a working weekend. Can you turn it into a writer's Hmm. weekend? And I was like, I'll try. So I just put my feelers out to every kind of writer I knew and wanted to work with. The two people that responded right away were Margaret Becker and Rick Kua. And those are like out of the classic. I remember going into the record stores and seeing Margaret Becker and Rick Kua all the time. That is crazy. We're talking 80s. I mean. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I Well, and the reason why I, I didn't know any of his music. I didn't mm-hmm. know him. He had just come to California a few months prior and played here in California. And I met him and his wife face to face for the first time. He came out with Dave Perkins and Phil Madeira. And they all did this, this show out here. I was blown away by his person. Like, I wanted to hang out with hmm. this dude. Everybody has always told me over the years, like, he's the nicest guy on the planet. Okay. And they're absolutely right. He and his wife were the nicest guys on the planet. So I, and I I was planning to write with Dave Perkins too. And I knew Margaret Becker from, we went to church together, but she and Dave were friends. Like they've known each other for years. So I was putting myself out there. Like I was, I'm nervous. It makes me sweat just even talking about it. I remember how nervous I was to ask them if they would write with me. Cause that's, that's just, (laughs) you know, it makes me, makes my stomach turn. It makes, makes me so nervous. And the fact that they both responded like immediately, like just makes me want to cry. You know, I I went to Rick's house and it was the sweetest, sweetest experience. And I didn't end up using the song on the record, but I'm going to use it um, in the future. But then I went to Margaret's house and I like showed up on her doorstep like shaking like a chihuahua just because I was so nervous. And um, she, you know, pulls me inside the house and sits me down and we're kind of talking about music and talking about the kind of things we listen to. Turns out we both listen to the same type of chill, groovy sort of music. And um, she can tell I was really nervous. <laughs> She's like, are you cold? I said, I'm freezing. She got me a blanket and a glass of wine and it was all right. Now we're talking. It was all, it was all good from that point on. It was all right. <laughs> and um, we, we wrote a song together on the fly. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with that process either. I've written with people in the past, but some people are really comfortable with mm-hmm. that process. It makes me a nervous wreck. And I, I was so in love with that whole process and writing with her in particular. Like I said, I was slated to go in a different direction and have somebody else produce. And when I, before I left the house, I was so conflicted because I, I asked her, I said, well, do you produce records? And she goes, well, yes, I do. And yeah. I was like, Hmm. Okay. And all the way home on the, on the plane, I was like, how can I get her? You know, how can I get her? How can I change lanes? And I, that's how that all came to be. Like when I got home, I, I just, I couldn't go any, I couldn't go in any other direction, but to go with her. And I called her and I said, would you be at all interested in producing? And she was like, hell yeah, let's do this. And yeah. so, so we started, um, we would write together. I wrote, I would write the majority of the, um, Melody, music, and lyric on um, the ro- the roads, Jean's awesome. roads. That's sitting right behind me. It was like uh-huh. magical. And um, and then I'd I'd put her. We'd we'd Skype. I'd sit the computer on top of the roads. She'd get her guitar out, and then we'd finish all the songs that way. What a crazy! And we did this process for about um, six months, I think. And we did the 
Kickstarter to raise the funds and we did a lot of pre-production online and then I I flew out there and when we you know when we raised the money I flew out there and we did a couple of days of pre-production awesome. and then I got my old guys <laughs> back my kids that I got in Jer- Jerry Rowe and Robbie Curitan and then she brought in Matt um Matt Stanfield which Jerry had played with before we didn't know that and Stephen Lywicky, um, we used his studio and he played on it and engineered it and she produced it. And it was like, it was yeah. golden, golden time for me. If Julian was my breakout, this was truly my complete solo endeavor. Margaret is such a facilitator and she, I've never worked with someone like her. She is amazing in the studio. I was talking to Steve Hinalong one time and he's like, oh my gosh, you're in such good hands. I said, I know. <laughs> it's crazy. She can do everything. She could play the music, music, engineer the music, produce the music, write the music, whatever you need her to do. She can do all of that, but ah. she's not heady about it at all. She always wanted to get out of the way. She, she told me all the time, she's like, I'm just here to make sure that you're you. You do it the way you want to do it. The message is what you want it to be, yeah. that you're exactly you. We're just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to get on that ride with you, you know, and I, I just love her so much for it. And I appreciate her so much. And she, you know, yeah. I couldn't have written those songs without her. She would take my chords and beautify them. We would make sense out of the words together. You know, I mean, she was the best friend, mentor, and producer I could have gone through this process with. And all along she kept saying, I want to know what you have to say. What do you have to say? What do you want to talk about? And I had all of these themes. I'd been keeping journals forever and had all these things I wanted to write about. But because of my experience of going through that with my sister, it kind of sprinkled a different light on those themes that I still wrote about, but it, it tweaked yeah. it and changed it a little bit, brought a little bit of heart, heartbreak into it and brought also awesome. a little bit of hope um, where there might not have been in certain areas of the songs, the sweetness. I wrote the sweetness a long time ago. Yeah, I saw that in the in the interview with Ojo that you've had that thing around for some time. I think I wrote. Well, I wrote it in uh, in Nashville, so I, I don't know. It's been maybe ten years. I've had it kind uh, of floating up and down, but it continues to like be a beacon in my life in in ways that it surprises hmm. me. It just kind of surfaces every now and then, and I tweak the lyrics a little bit. For this record, um, and I, I like the end end product a lot, but it means a lot to me. So I, I'm really appreciative that it's it means something to you too, because I truly, truly, you know, um, the driving theme through the uh, record. On the gift, I, I'm curious that I noticed the the word, and I'm gonna, not going to say it right for sure. Uudohi. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> not a chance. Not a chance. <laughs> so we're we're. Ta- where are we where are we coming from here? <laughs> well, um, okay, so <laughs> I I love world music. I okay. love tribal music. I love the mixture of chill and tribal together. Um, and I wanted some of those flavors on the record. And in the past few years, I've kind of learned more about my great grandmother, who I'm told mm. was full blood Cherokee Indian. And I've got a picture of her, um, an eight by ten of her that um, I don't know. I feel like. You know, I don't know if when people die and souls move on, if we can actually communicate with them or if feel their presence or whatever. I don't know if we're making it up or if it's real, but I could swear that I have hmm. had some sort of community with her at some point in my life, you know. Sure. Um, and so that song is sort of an ode to her. And I really wanted to put 
life is beautiful in Cherokee in the lyrics. But it's, such <laughs> a, it's such a funky phrase. We, I couldn't make it fit properly. So okay. I made my, made up my own chant. Um, and that's the chant, um, that, you know, the background vocals is, is just made up. To me, that was the one that hit me the most. I like the vibe of it. And, and, uh, I don't know. I love hearing Ricky in there. It's awesome. It's, <laughs> you know, as the fan in me. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's I I love I love I love that song too, but it's so funny, you know, you never know what's going to what people are going to choose and I I just figured that would be like sort of the side song that nobody would get or well, I'm so tickled <laughs> that you like that one cuz it does it, they all mean a lot to me, but I I love the vibe of that song too. I'm I have to say, you asked me, you know, like what, what I think of this record. And I, I am, I, I pinch myself every day. It's exactly what I wanted. It's exactly the record I wanted to make. And I am so grateful to everyone for making this record with me. You know, all the Kickstarters, I was overwhelmed. I didn't think that was going to work. Mm-hmm. I was embarrassed to ask people for money. Um, it has created such great relationships and I'm so grateful and so blown away that people would even pay attention to that. And, and it gave them the opportunity to be a part of this. And I'm so glad to share this because I'm happy with it. I'm happy with, and I can't imagine making another record without Margaret. And we've already talked about starting on a new one together and starting to write again together. And I'm just, I'm, I'm tickled and I'm thrilled. And if I, you know, if it were all be be over today, I I would be I would feel like that was finally what I was sure. wanting to do my whole life. Isn't that interesting? I mean, there had to be a couple minutes back in the day when all that stuff was falling apart where you're like, this is it. I'm not going to be doing this anymore. I mean, could you have imagined yourself sitting here saying, oh, I found the person I'm going to make my next record with. We kicked. It's just incredible. You know, like that is the hard thing to see when times are dark, that that's a possibility to come later on. And yet here you are, you know, already thinking about the next album. I think that's awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, um, because of this record, I have met so many musicians here in San Diego. Yeah, now, I've got my, go. now I there found my go. peeps, you know, you kind of have to have something solid oh, to yeah. present to professional musicians <laughs> before they even give you the time of day. I can't just show up and play my half-assed guitar playing. Well, at least you can play a half-assed guitar because I can't do <laughs> shit. I can't play a single instrument. Well, I get and, by you know, off of trickery. I'm just so grateful <laughs> I think it's awesome. I get it, man. I get it. I'm I'm taking lessons right now because I do want to be independent. That's another thing that Margaret uh, was so adamant about. She's like, you're going to do this thing on your own. You're going to, she sent me a keyboard in the mail for Pete's sake. She's like, you're going to, this has MIDI capabilities. You just get online, you do garage yeah. band, whatever you need to do, but you're going to be an independent musician um, and get out there and do your own thing. You don't have to rely on anyone else. And I was like, <laughs> thank you. That's awesome. I don't know why I needed somebody to give me permission, but it sure kicked my ass enough to get, want to get out there and do it on my own. So, you know, for now I'll use the professionals and, and, and work with the people who really know what they're doing, but I'm on, I'm on the road to independent recovery for sure. Sweetness of 
I think that's a good spot to land on. What do you think? Yeah. Think you're, or, I don't want to take oh, your whole entire life up. <laughs> that was awesome, by the way. Oh, thanks for giving your time to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, heck, you are awesome. Are you kidding me? No, Rick and Michelle, you, you are awesome. Ah, yes, never was is. There you have it. The Dame, the Dame Ricky. I want to thank both her and her sweetheart of a husband, Mr. Dave Palmer. Also, friend of the show, Matt Corsi, for sort of facilitating this whole thing in the first place. Thank you for that, man. The album is Push, but of course, there's so much more. Please do some exploring. You have the world at your fingertips. Use your keyboard for something beautiful that doesn't have anything to do with politics. Tonight, we heard some really brutal audio. <laughs> brutal audio of Adam again live at Cornerstone 92. Yeah, it's, uh, that's kind of rough. Okay, but can't you just feel the dust in your teeth? <laughs> I feel like the, that live recording and the quality of it says everything you need to know about Cornerstone. There you go. It smells like Cornerstone. Okay, sorry. Also, from uh, Ricky's first solo album, Big Big Town, we heard Look At This, Look At That. Then we jump back over to Adam again and her dig, the title track off of that masterpiece of a record. And for those paying attention, my buddy Renee, whom Ricky and I share as a friend, the very piece 586 who was on this show, dig was the album he mentioned on that episode. Yeah, he was there in the room when they were tracking that. So let that sink in for a minute. Also, we heard the fine line from the album Homeboys, one of my all-time favorite Adam Again tracks. And I think both of those were excellent pictures of at least the musical relationship between Gene and Ricky, their voices and their presence. So yeah, kudos to me for having awesome tastes all this time because I've always loved those songs. Okay, from the album Push, we heard Into Peace and the Sweetness. Again, lovely. Thank you, Ricky, and thank you, Never Was, for sticking with me over this weird last few months. This show was mixed and produced by the one and only Billy Power of Urban Achiever Studios. If you enjoyed this show and would like to support this baby, please make your way to the Patreon link on the show page. Toss a buck or two in the old digital tip jar. Thanks. If you'd like to write in, ask a question, grind an axe, or just say hello, please. Write me at the Twilight Zone at iNeverWas.com. That's the Twilight Zone, no Z's at iNeverWas.com. You can visit us on Facebook and Twitter. And as always, this episode and all previous episodes are available at iTunes or at iNeverWas.com. Until next time, be good. Be good. Rainbow out. <laughs>